Last Sunday morning, I preached from a passage of scripture in which Jesus taught his disciples about fasting. And now in what I'm about to say, I am not fishing for compliments. Please don't hear these remarks that way. But most Sundays when I preach, at least one person says to me after worship in the sanctuary, in the narthex, out on the patio, somewhere on the campus, God spoke to me today through what you said, or I needed to hear that, or I really appreciated something about what you said, even if I didn't say it. Uh, People sometimes hear something different. Well, last Sunday, not a single one of you, not a single one of you said anything like that. I felt like a pariah as I left the sanctuary. Nobody wanted to talk to me, be near me, have anything to do with me. I know. And it hurts people. It hurts. In the 48 hours after preaching about fasting, more than one person did, however, joke to me about fasting. Even though when uh, preaching, I confessed something that I hadn't ever shared with anyone, that way back in seminary, when the stress level got high, that late at night I would walk over to the corner market and have my sugar fix in the form of windmill cookies. Instead of turning to God in prayer, instead of trusting God, I turned to uh, the always available windmill cookies at the Wawa market. On Monday, uh, when I was at Costco, as I often go to Costco on Monday to get staples, basics for my family, at one of those free sampling stations... Unbelievably, there were windmill cookies. I couldn't believe it. I've never seen windmill cookies there before, had no idea that they sold them. And it just felt like God was tempting or teasing me as I struggled to fast in certain ways and from certain things. Nevertheless, I saw it as uh, God's grace and had one of the cookies and then later on circled back and... Got another one. Just another one. On Tuesday morning, someone in the congregation gave to me, presented to me, uh, this little box of windmill cookies. Again, and maybe as a sweet gesture or maybe just taunting me. It was hard to tell. I know the person uh, loves me, cares about me, is good in soul all the way. But really, the guy who gave them to me was Dutch, is Dutch, and I think he was probably just missing his own windmills. (laughs) But thank you, Jerry. I'm going to enjoy them, and as I uh, wrote on Thursday, I'm happy to share them with any of you who are actually paying attention on Sunday mornings. I do want to say, though, before we go on to today's topic, uh, first, a few things about fasting. First, fasting as a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice as part of the way of Jesus may not be for you, at least not right now, and definitely not for you if you have a medical condition that would only be made worse by fasting. First, that's the first thing. Second, it's important that we understand fasting as a means of God's grace through which our relationship with God And our following Jesus and our love for others may be deepened and not as a duty that we must fulfill in order to please God or to be good. Fasting, as it's encouraged in Scripture, is intended to be a means of God's grace through which we might know God better and know ourselves better. 
That's number two. And then number three, if you are up for exploring the sort of fasting that we talked about last week and that Jesus did and that Jesus assumed his disciples were doing, but you're not ready to fast from food or drink for an entire day or more, then be encouraged to begin fasting from just one meal, just one meal, or if that is too much, to begin fasting uh, in smaller ways, maybe from things that distract you from God, maybe from windmill cookies, and put into uh, practice a little at a time this biblical discipline of fasting. That's it in recap. Uh, We move on now, though, if you found last Sunday's message unusual, unappealing, difficult, you may likely find this morning's passage similarly or the same difficult, unappealing, unusual. So for that reason and others, uh, pray with me again one one more time. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to be attentive to you. Despite everything that's going on, despite our watches, despite our schedules, despite our distractions, help us to be attentive to you over and beyond what we want, what we think we need. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are good soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So you may or may have not noticed, but over the past three Sundays as part of our series called The Way of Jesus, during these past, the past three Sundays, we've been moving through chapter six of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the middle of three chapters in Matthew's Gospel that are known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Four weeks ago, John Garcia spoke about Jesus and the Scripture's encouragement to live for or to live before an audience of one to not do good deeds in order to be seen by others or to try to impress other people, to not be guided or unduly swayed or enslaved by the opinions of others. Instead, we must live not in bondage to what others think of us and our actions, but instead we are called to live for God, to live before God and God alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we went on to hear in subsequent weeks, the past three weeks, about what Jesus had to say about giving and about prayer and last Sunday about fasting. All, as we have said, being part of Jesus' curriculum for learning to follow Jesus and training to follow Jesus and to have our lives shaped by his instruction, which we could call the way of Jesus, in order that we might experience what Jesus called abundance, the abundance of his kingdom his kingdom of love to which he invites us. Are you with me? And then we went on to hear uh, not only about uh, giving, prayer, and fasting, but how those things are to be done toward God and toward God alone. And we've got another sort of discipline in that regard to look at this morning. Uh, With all of that in mind, listen closely to what Jesus says, continuing in chapter 6. The editors of most of our English Bibles today break up this part of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, into two or three or four different sections, which make us think that they're not related to each other at all. But I'm going to read them all without breaks, as they originally appear in the Greek text, 
because I think they really do belong to each other. So listen closely. This is Jesus speaking. This is the word of God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust, moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes, your looking, are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, anxiety, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, a word that can also be translated justice, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, this translation says, destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not, cannot break in and steal. But the reality is that we do store up for ourselves treasures of all sorts on earth. Even though we know that moths and vermin destroy and that thieves break in and steal. We know that the stock market sometimes tumbles as it did this past week and tumble and tumble. And along with it, many or much of the treasures that many of us have stored up on earth. I was speaking to someone this week who has recently had the unenviable task of going through the home which was like a storehouse, as it turns out, of a now-deceased parent who had stored up much over the course of a lifetime, but who was not able to take any of it with him to heaven. A friend shared with me recently how he understood very clearly that his house, his beloved house, that he really likes and really enjoys, that he owns now, 
is simply a house and something that he lives in, that he is living in for a season of life, however long that season may be. And that season will be over one day and he cannot take it with him. And that seemed like healthy detachment. Why, Rabbi Jesus, should we not store up for ourselves treasures on earth? Because, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is observing and he is reminding us how things are, how reality is, how things work. That's all he's doing here. Where your treasure is, where we have placed it, there our hearts will be also. And Jesus wants our hearts to be in heaven or of heaven or on heaven or with heaven. The dwelling place we have talked about as we talked about in recent weeks, the dwelling place of our father, our Abba, our daddy. He wants our hearts to be there and in that place and in that relationship. Jesus' words could not be any more relevant today than if he had spoken them 2,000 years ago, specifically for 2018. We are surrounded by and immersed in a world that says, get, buy, acquire, you must have, accumulate stuff, things, possessions, toys, gadgets, the latest of this, the newest of that, whatever is hot, whatever people are talking about, whatever other people have or are getting. The new iPhone came out this week, as they do just regularly, and the world has to have one. There is an invisible force or power that draws us to the mall, or to Amazon, or to Walmart, or Costco, or TJ Maxx, or Union Square, where a friend of mine is shopping today, or Fifth Avenue. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus talks about the power of our eyes and our looking and our craving and our wanting more things and the latest things. We window shop at stores, we window shop online, and we look at and crave what people around us have. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, in other words, always looking, craving, wanting, envying, Your whole body will be full of darkness, your whole self. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness or how terrible is that darkness? And then again, this statement simply of how things are, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus again is observing how things are, declaring how things are. Reminding us of how things are, reality. And Jesus uses here for money the Aramaic word mammon, which simply meant wealth, but it was a way of personifying wealth that he uses. And Matthew gives us that Aramaic term. A person cannot serve both God and mammon, both God and wealth. Every person must choose either the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus, or the God of wealth, money, possessions. One or the other, but not both, says Jesus. And yet so many of us outside and inside the church are consumed by a lust for more. 
Some people work themselves to the bone. For what? We are selling our souls, Jesus says. Look, Jesus says to the people who have access to more than basic meals and who are well clothed, look, life is more than fine food and fine clothes. God takes care of the animals. God makes the flowers of the field beautiful. He will take care of you. He will take care of me. Why do we worry about fine food and fine clothes? The only ungodly worry about such things, Jesus says. The ungodly are consumed by such things, Jesus says. Jesus, our, our sweet Jesus, on the cross, died for our sins, precious moments, Jesus. And so what do we make of that? What is a well-fed and happily fed congregation of people who give varying degrees of attention to the clothes we buy and the clothes we wear and how we look, what do we think of what Jesus said and what he still says? What do we make of Jesus' observations and Jesus' commendations? And what was Jesus' problem anyway? What is his problem? Jesus clearly doesn't want us to worry. Jesus doesn't want us to worry about such things. He doesn't want us and our attention to be consumed by such things. He doesn't want food and clothes and other such things to be for us distractions from something better. Something better for us, something better for others, something better for our world. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All the food you could ever want, all the clothes you'll ever need. God will make sure that we've got what we need. We have asked him for daily bread, and he promises to provide. So we don't need to worry about such things, and in the place of worry, and with the time and energy we might have spent worrying, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or his justice. Seek first God's reign in your life and in the world. We have been told by Jesus to pray as Jesus, as Jim led us in prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. And now Jesus says, don't just pray this, church. Don't just pray and ask that that reality comes about, but also seek it out. Pursue it, long for it, yearn for it, commit yourself to it, work for it, labor for it, be devoted to seeing it come about, be devoted to seeing it come to fruition, this kingdom for which we pray. Seek first the kingdom of God. And because focusing too much on food and clothing or desiring more in food and clothing than is really necessary can distract a person's eyes and a person's stomach and really the whole person from the things of God, Jesus calls these things out just as examples and says in contrast that the way, in other words, the way to which he calls us forward and through such is to seek first the kingdom of God in one's life and in one's home and in one's finances and in one's time and in one's heart and in one's commitment and in one's neighborhood and in the world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or his justice. Seek such first far out ahead of all other things that one may seek or desire or yearn for or long for. Pursue, desire. In the words of the great Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing, 
to want, to desire, to will one thing, purity of heart, righteousness. Simple. And what might a simple life in obedience to Rabbi Jesus look like? Richard Foster, uh, on whom I am heavily dependent for this message. Richard Foster insists that it is necessarily both an inward reality and an outward reality. It cannot be just one or the other. I cannot live simply, simply inside, but also it has to happen outside, outwardly, to be true and authentic. And it will be countercultural, and it will be distinctly different, and it will go against the flow, both inwardly and outwardly, my own flow, the flow of my world and the culture and even the church. In his now little classic book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes, we must clearly understand that the lust for, influence, for affluence, find food, find clothes, find whatever else we can afford, acquire, or enjoy. We must clearly understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic because it has lost touch with reality. And he wrote this 20 or 25 years ago. How much more so today? He continues, and this psychosis permeates even our mythology or the stories that we tell that help us interpret what is good and right and virtuous. This psychosis permeates even our mythology. The modern hero today is the poor boy who becomes rich rather than the Franciscan ideal of the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. Do you get that? This psychosis permeates even our mythology. The modern hero, who we hold to be a hero in our eyes and in our mind and in the world today, is the poor boy who becomes rich rather than the Franciscan ideal or model of the rich boy who chooses to become poor, a la St. Francis. As Richard Foster continues, we must be clear when thinking about such things that the Bible is not ambiguous about economic issues. Jesus has just declared that a person cannot serve or give his or her full attention to both God and wealth. It is not possible. To both God and material possessions. It is not possible. It cannot happen. It will not come about. Not in my life or yours. Foster writes, so often it is felt that our response to wealth is an individual matter. A private matter. The Bible's teaching in this area is said to be strictly a matter of private interpretation. We try to believe that Jesus did not address himself to practical economic questions. However, no serious reading of Scripture can substantiate such a view. The biblical injunctions against the exploitation of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and straightforward. The Bible challenges nearly every economic value of contemporary society, including the popular notion, careful, Shannon, of an absolute right to private property. Which is the foundation of our economic system and all things that are good in the Western world, we may think, and yet the scriptures talk about a year of jubilee when everything that has been borrowed or loaned or sold on a regular basis is returned to its original possessor or owner a redistribution of wealth so that no one will be stuck in poverty their whole life. Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day. He spoke frequently and unambiguously to economic issues. He said, blessed are the poor 
For yours is the kingdom of God, and woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus graphically depicted the difficult, the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God, being like the possibility or impossibility of a camel walking through the eye of a needle. With God, of course, all things are possible, but Jesus clearly understand the, understood the difficulty in such. He saw the grip that wealth can have on a person. He knew what he affirmed, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And all of these things we have read in chapter 6 in Matthew's gospel. Jesus exhorted a rich young ruler not just to have an inner attitude of detachment from his possessions, not just an inner attitude of detachment, but that he literally get rid of his possessions if he wanted or wanted to experience or see or know or be a part of the kingdom of God. In another place, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Quote, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I'm going to go a little bit further with, with Foster since we have no internet connection. Jesus told a parable about a rich farmer whose life centered in hoarding. And Jesus called him a fool. He said that if we really want the kingdom of God, we must, like a merchant in search of fine pearls, be willing to sell everything that we have to get it. He called all who would follow him to a joyful life of carefree, unconcerned for possessions. Quote Jesus, give to everyone who begs from you. And of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. Jesus spoke to the question of economics more than any other single social issue. If in, a, if in a comparatively simple society our Lord would lay such strong emphasis upon the spiritual dangers of wealth, how much more should we who live in a highly affluent culture take seriously this economic question? Of course, God does not intend that we be materially deprived, that anyone should be forced into poverty. There is nothing in Scripture that suggests that God desires that anyone become or remain materially poor, lacking destitute, lacking in basic daily needs. And yet, simplicity is the only thing that can sufficiently foster rights, reorient our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying our souls. No one's going to talk to me after worship today. <laughs> the inward reality of simplicity involves a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. Simply living without things is no guarantee that a person is living in simplicity. The love of money is the root of all evil, the scriptures say, but sometimes those without it love it just as much or more than those with it. Foster writes that there are three inner attitudes that characterize the sort of freedom from anxiety or worry that Jesus desires for his students and that are beacons of the kingdom of God. One, to receive what we have as a gift from God. 
to know that all that we have is not something that we earned or really something that we own or get to keep, but it is a gift from God. And to in that have a, a healthier relationship with those things, with our things, with those things, understanding that they are things that have been given to us. Number two, to know that it is God's business and not ours to care for what we have. That doesn't mean I leave my keys in my car overnight and the windows down and the doors unlocked. But it, it does mean that I not cling to, with a tight grip, everything that is mine, as if my life depended on those things. And number three, to make sure that our goods are available to others. Which is not something I was good at as a younger person. And I don't know if I'm any good at it now as a much older person. But it's good to be thinking about such things that whatever I have is yours. And if I have anything that you need or want or would like to borrow or have or take, there is freedom of soul and spirit and freedom from anxiety and being able to say, it's yours. You need my watch, you want to borrow my car, you need my iPhone for a while, here's my computer, here are my clothes, here's stuff that I have. And Foster suggests that for which Jesus uh, was aiming in his teaching on possessions, uh, that not only were inward attitudes important, but also outward realities. And to that end, Foster in his book recommends 10 guiding principles, of which I'm going to share with you just three this morning. One, buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. For the status that they may convey. Because we do that, I do that, people do that. I was in a parking lot yesterday in a, at a kid's soccer tournament and hearing all of the people uh, coming and going by talking about a particular brand of car that I was parked next to and uh, admiring that. And I mean, clearly we all know and understand there is a status symbol in our culture related to that car. We do that with clothes. We do that with other things. Foster says, buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. As a spiritual discipline, as part of, as part of your spiritual discipline. He says, number two, develop a habit of giving things away. If you find that you're becoming attached to some possessions, consider giving it or them to someone who needs them or who simply will appreciate them more. I have a friend named Peter, let's call him Peter, that's his name, who years ago began a discipline of every year giving away something that was near and dear to him. And he wasn't old. He wasn't 60, 70, 80, 90, needing to liquidate or divest anyway. He was a young man at the time when he began this. And began each year to give away one possession very intentionally that he liked, that he enjoyed, that he treasured. And found freedom and joy in doing so. And number three, have nothing to do with whatever may distract you from your primary goal, which is seeking first the kingdom of God. Have nothing to do with whatever may distract you from your primary goal, which is seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus gives us examples clothes. He gives us an example food, but there are many more that we could talk about. I have a friend, uh, we'll call him Richard, because he goes by Rick. And Rick is a really, really wealthy guy. And over the years, say the last 20 years, I'd say that 90% of the time that I've seen him, 
Rick was wearing just sort of plain old cotton khakis and a white dress shirt. 90% of the time that I've seen him. Not in a Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg kind of way of that being a trademark, but just living as simply as he could and not being affixed to things that might impress people. And we never talked about it, and I'm not sure that's the reason he does it, but I assume it is. Because he doesn't want his treasures to be here on earth, but his treasures are in heaven. I have a friend who last weekend uh, ran a half marathon. He was really excited and delighted with the time that he finished in. He'd been training for about six months. We can do things, set personal records in half marathons, when and as we train. When and as, with God's help and by God's grace and with his power, we practice a step at a time, learning to fast, learning to give, learning to let go easing our anxiety by realizing that what we have isn't necessarily ours and doesn't have to be held with a tight grip. I've got a long way to go on this myself, admittedly. But this is what Jesus said. These are the things that Jesus said. This is his way, whether the church wants to acknowledge that or not. I don't know if there's another way to unpack or to interpret these things. Daryl Guter is a professor, kind of a renowned professor of missiology at Princeton Seminary and an author, and he writes in one of his books called The Continuing Conversion of the Church. He writes, through the ages, Christians have usually found ways around the clear meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. We can thus read the story of the history of Christian theology as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its, particularly, in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible to our world and palatable to ourselves. This is a, he's a brilliant mind, and he says that the history of Christian theology has been trying to find ways to make Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom and his instructions for us in life now more palatable for us today. But more palatable doesn't get us to the heavens, and more palatable doesn't get us to abundance, and more palatable doesn't get us to the kingdom. Again, I'm closing this morning with uh, Henry Nouwen's words that I've closed with a couple of times during these series because they continue to speak to me. The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus, however, is radically different. It is not the way of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the scenes, and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way to the kingdom. It is the way that Jesus took. And it is the way that brings everlasting life. Let's pray. Teach us, God. Give us life. Forgive us. Help us. Save us. Redeem us. 
Help us in our attachment to things, in our desires, in our cravings, in the ways that we look. Help us to be generous. Help us to trust you. Free us from anxiety. You are good. Thank you for loving us. Amen.